Kirsty Cameron is a brilliant UK competition pilot who's been a long-term national team member. She's had a mixed XC career in the UK, but this year all her experience has come together and she's been flying further and further. On the 13th of May, the day after one of the best UK XC days ever, she went out and flew the second longest flight ever done in Britain. The flight smashed a number of records and has made the women's and men's distance record nearly equal. One of the features of the flight was just how much airspace she had to negotiate, flying over, under and around it. If you'd like to see the flight as you're listening to the podcast, you can download her track log from the podcast page at www.judithmull.net slash blog. So, tell me about the big one. The big one, the big one, yes, it was rather, <laughs> it was rather um, quite unexpected in a way and... Um, you know, not least because I've, I've only flown 100k once before in the UK, and that was two years ago. And I mean, I spent a lot of my sort of UK cross-country time over the last sort of six or seven years doing a sort of 40k thing, really. <laughs> and for a long time, I struggled to sort of, you know, get above 40 kilometres for what seemed like years, really. And then I started to get a few sort of breakthroughs of getting sort of slightly bigger distances. But sort of the big ones, 80k plus and over 100 kilometres sort of eluded me for a long time, really. So that day, I mean, did you know it was going to be a big day? Had you looked at RASP or was it, you know, was it kind of one of those days where you went out and thought, well, you know, I'll go cross country and just see what happens. But you weren't expecting a big day. Yeah, I mean, the whole whole weekend was forecast to be good, thermal-wise, very good the whole weekend. But the Sunday was forecast to be windy, especially up north, you know, completely blown out for the northern pilots, but potentially okay for down south. But we're all sort of focusing on the Saturday to start with because that was such a good forecast and forecast to be less wind as well. And there was a huge amount of expectation around that day, really. I mean, half the sort of the northern pilots all descended on Long Mountain and uh, the southern pilots all descended on Leckhampton out, out of choice because in the northerly you can go to Coombe but you can't fly as far so and I think it was almost forecast to be stronger to the east as well more wind and uh, Lecky was supposed to be slightly less wind we all got there and it was howling and then we got reports through that Helen had just taken off on Long Mountain so that got everyone jittery and there was talk about leaving Leckhampton and driving all the way to Long Mountain fortunately the wind started to drop and we were able to get away from Leckhampton but it's pretty much a cliff launch, really, and not quite, not like not a, like a coastal cliff launch, but quite steep. And well, it was, <laughs> the wind gradient there is horrendous. You pull the glider up, and you just get sort of hoiked into the air, really. And um, on an R11, it's even more so. Um, and I actually, it's, had to it's push off the hill. Well. It it is tiny, yeah. It's, well, it's, the ridge is quite long, but it's um it's not very high top to bottom, and it's quite it's quite shallow lower down, but then very steep at the top. But anyway, yeah, so I took off there and climbed straight out to sort of 4,000 foot on the hill almost instantly, and two or three were below me. I mean, the R11 is interesting because <laughs> actually it could put you into a disadvantage at times because I, was very, I very much wanted to go XC with others, really, but I climbed out so strongly and so well that I just decided to go over the back and the others pushed forward back to the hill. So I was on my own, but I was at 4,000 foot. I'm going downwind. I'm sort of dusting off the flight deck. <laughs> thinking here we go for the big one and I declared a goal at Weymouth as had a lot of people and that was my downfall really this declared goal because I got close to Kemble north of Kemble ATZ and I was kind of the wrong side of it I was on the northeast side and I really need to be on the west side to try and get towards Weymouth and I was adamant I was going to be on the west side of Kemble 
And so pretty much sort of flew from the northeast side around to the west side and in so doing so landed, basically. I was trying to fly crosswind too much. And um, so I landed at 25 kilometres and then everyone started pouring over my head mm. for, for the next sort of hour. <laughs> so that was the context of the day before that I essentially bombed on what turned out. I found out the next morning as I looked at all the flights in the league, one of the biggest days ever in the UK in terms of distance, probably the biggest day. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say there's the other story that Helen Gant broke the women's record that That's day, it. doing 165 exactly. kilometres, and Kai Coleman doing um, 222 kilometres in a straight line. Yeah. And I mean, but actually, I mean, when you said earlier that you were considering going from Lakehampton to Long Mountain, mm. despite the fact that you had a short flight, it would have been even worse if you'd done that because you'd have sat in the car and by the time you got there it was all game over yeah it was exactly. only the early birds that actually exactly. got away and yeah, in fact no, it was and it was a phenomenal day in the UK it was and, and people did big distance from from Leckhampton as well in fact Simon Twist got um the declared goal record essentially but he missed his entry cylinder at Leckhampton and um which would have been 140k declared goal which would have been the record as well so there was records broken all over the place you know not least Helen's record you know, so there I was on that morning looking at all these flights and, you know, the most humbling of which was Helen's. And, you know, coming back to what I said earlier on, I'd never, I'd only flown over 100k once before in the UK. I'd not flown more than 120 kilometres or thereabouts anywhere in the world. So the fact that she'd flown 166 and smashed Judy Ledden's, yeah, record. I kind of thought, that's it, it's all over, you know. I'm not going to be flying 166 kilometres anytime soon. <laughs> And then you went flying. <laughs> and then I went flying, yeah. So I, mean, I, think, I think the next morning kind of caught a lot of pilots sleeping, literally. I mean, I think that certainly those pilots up north had looked at the forecast for Sunday and thought, well, it's going to be blown out, we won't bother. And I think those down south, some probably thought similar, and um, the rest were sort of still dreaming about their flights from the day before. So um, I decided that I, I would go out. Although somewhat despondently, if I'm honest, you know, I kind of thought, well, it's probably going to blow out. I've missed the big day the day before. Should I bother? But um, we had to go out and um, we got to the hill very early, actually. I was fully aware that I needed to be on the hill really early because of the forecast to blow out by sort of lunchtime, even down south. But we got there at half nine on Milk Hill and Rybury and there wasn't that much wind, actually. There was two or three gliders on the hill and they weren't able to stay up at that point. There was a usual sort of choice because obviously that whole sort of milk massif, as it's referred to, rather <laughs> ridiculously. <laughs> Hardly. That's a three mole hill stack exactly, on the top of exactly. <laughs> yeah. But you've got all those series of hills there and sometimes it's a, it's a job to decide which one to go to. Rybury face is more west. It's a classic westerly face, really, which sits sort of, if you're up on Milk Hill and look out in front of you and to the right, Rybury's there. So, you're, so Milk Hill is actually in the lee of Rybury. Rybury needs a lot of wind there really to stay up. It's it's quite an odd hill in that respect. It's quite steep and you think it would work in light winds, but it doesn't particularly. Um, and the winds at this point were light. They're also west-southwest, um, which you can work on Rybury, but it was forecast to go around southwesterly as well. And I was very conscious of not wanting to be stuck on the wrong hill, really, um, not being able to go anywhere. So we plumped for milk and I was fairly sort of chilled out, really, thinking, well, we're not going to get a big XC before I have to land out. So milk it was, and we got there, and we set up, and there was a few other club pilots there. Um, I turned up with Steve Newcomb, who I fly with a lot in the UK, sort of my flying buddy, really. And we had one small hop for about five minutes, and it didn't, you know, you could, you could stay up. It was horrible, but there was no decent thermals coming through, and we landed out, and then we took off again about another 
20 minutes, half an hour later, at sort of 11 o'clock, and we managed to climb out pretty much straight away in what was actually a pretty solid thermal. And Charles Norwood was in that climb as well, who's a very good XC pilot. So there was the three of us. Again, I managed to sort of stay on the, on the top of the stack on the R11, pretty much get out the base in that thermal. The other two struggled a bit, and they eventually managed to get up. But by that stage, I was kind of one thermal ahead of them. And I did go back over the top of them initially near Marlborough because, I, again, I was conscious of wanting to do the flight with others, really. But the problem with the R11 is it flies so fast. Sometimes it feels like flying a hang glider, certainly compared to sort of EMB-type gliders or EMC gliders. So I ended up ahead of them. And that was a precedent for the next sort of 40 kilometres up towards Didcop. You know, and that whole route I'm very familiar with, going into the Vale of White Horse over the M40. And that bit was quite straightforward. I was going to say, it's a tricky one, isn't it? When you have to make the decision whether you're going to wait for others and do the flight together or when you decide that you actually just need to push ahead and go and you just have to leave people behind. And, it, it, you know, there's often that crunch point in a flight where it's either with somebody else or on your own. Yeah. And, and if your yeah. glider determines that for you, then in a sense, it's, it's actually maybe slightly easier. I don't know. Well, I don't know. I'm not, again, I was conscious of the day before where I'd ended up on my own from Leckhampton and, and it ended up going down because I was searching for lift on my own. So, you know, there are advantages being with other pilots. Mm. And this day was quite a different day. I mean, I think that's the other thing I should explain is that I think the other reason it's taken me a long time to start flying good distance in the UK is that I naturally fly quite fast. I suppose I'm slightly impatient and I'm not a very good pilot at going round and round in zero. <laughs> Zero is very long. I just tend to think there must be something better. Yeah, I think that that comes from having flown abroad a lot, you know, and, and comps. You know, often there is something better further down down the route or whatever. And um, and often there isn't in the UK. You know, often it's that what you're in is the best thermal for the next, you know, for 10 kilometres all around you, you're in it. It's the one up and that's the best it's going to get. It's taken me a long time to realise that. But this particular day was plain from quite early on that the, the climbs were going to be good, they were going to be strong. And, you know, the other thing I need to start talking about with this flight in particular was what defined the flight was the wind. You know, the wind, although it had been light on takeoff, by the time it got sort of over towards Didcot and Abingdon, south of Oxford, which is about 60 kilometres, it was you know, it was obvious that the wind, certainly higher up, was was a good, strong, you know, wind. It wasn't howling, but... You know, even at this point, I was getting sort of 60 kilometres an hour or so on glides. So there's, you know, decent wind. And the thermals are drifting in the wind as well, you know. So the whole flight, you're you know, progressing the whole thing. It was obviously going to be not a typical UK flight, which kind of suited me. It was more akin to sort of flying a competition task in the sense that you could keep pushing on. You, you didn't have to take every thermal to the absolute top. You could see clouds forming in front of me. Um, there was good indicators that there was more lift further on just as good as where I was now, you know. So so that kind of suited my competition mentality, I suppose, with flying. Kind of a good day for me in that sense. Okay, with the wind, though, directional control is somewhat more limited because you're drifting in the thermal and you're drifting one way, basically, and the crosswind glide's yeah. possible, but whilst you're drifting yeah. in the thermal, you're drifting in the way the wind wants to take you. So you were going towards some fairly hefty airspace, weren't you? I was, and I was very conscious of it. I mean... I, and lots of different things came together on this day, you know, which helped me to do that big flight. One, obviously, I've, I think I've improved as a, as a UK cross-country pilot. Two, I was on a very good glider, which I'm now very comfortable with as well. It's a magical glider. And three, for the first part of that route, I know where I need to be. You know, I know, I know literally looking at the ground and ground features and towns and so forth, I know where I need to be to make sure that I'm not rapidly getting towards airspace. And I think that's the thing in the UK with UK flying that, 
you know, for those pilots that are sort of wanting to do more longer cross-country flying is that you have to know the airspace and you, and more importantly, you have to preempt airspace. It's no good just flying along even now as, as I do and as a lot of people do with a, you know, a digital copy of the map whereby you, you know, your, your position is plotted relative to the airspace. There's no point all of a sudden being half a kilometre or one kilometre from the airspace and then going, Oh, bugger, you know, I need to get around this now. You know, you need to be preempting it way before then because essentially if you're right up against flight lane or close up to an ATZ and there's no way around, you're not going to get around. You can't suddenly switch on an engine and <laughs> fly five kilometres to the north or whatever it needs to be to get around it. And as you said, paragliders don't crosswind very well, essentially. So so that was the other thing I was trying to preempt things. And what I was actually having to do early in the flight, because the wind was from the west-southwest, there was a lot of west in the wind, so it was trying to push me very much to the east the whole time, which is pushing me towards Heathrow airspace, and not just the actual, you know, the, what they call the terminal manoeuvring area, actually around Heathrow, which is down to the floor. You know, all the areas, as you know, that stretch out from that are flight lanes that are gradually descending towards Heathrow, and the same for Luton as well, which is further to the north. So although, you know, the first kind of airspace you come across is not going to be from the surface upwards it's going to be from four and a half and then from three and a half and then from two and a half so if you head east from milk by any sort of decent distance you're going to come across a lot of lower airspace from ribery which is the westerly side as i said once you get beyond reading you're doomed really because it goes down to two and a half and you just don't have the ground clearance to to glide and keep going really so yeah so i was very very much aware that i needed to push to the northeast really rather than being blown towards the east i needed to keep pushing north so at one point I, there was a good sort of cloud street in front of me or good extension of cumulus even if it wasn't streeting which was an obvious way to go but i was conscious that i couldn't go in that direction i needed to fly to the north and get onto the next set of streeting cumulus um, the first thing you need to get around is a privileged area just south of Digcot called Harwell, which is not allowed into, well, you can fly over it at two and a half, but essentially you need to fly around it. And that's a good place. It's a good waypoint as well, because if you can get around that onto the northwest side of it, then it sets you up, in a, it puts you in a much better position to avoid airspace further to the east anyway. That I managed to do. And the other two that I was with, who were a bit behind me, they sadly didn't. And it was frustrating because I could see them behind me, one thermal behind, and, and I just lost sight of them. And I'd hoped that they were sort of up and might, you know, actually sort of leapfrog me at some point, but they didn't. And in fact, I found out later they'd both landed in a Dicot, unfortunately. As you said, you're right. You need to be thinking about crosswinding where you can. And obviously, crosswinding when you're high is, <laughs> is the way to do it. Trying to crosswind low, like I did the day before, trying to go around Kemble is not the way to do it. And I was very conscious of that, really, as well. Is it part of your normal pre-flight routine to look at an air map for kind of the total distance that you could go or do you sort of just have a look at the first bit of kind of what you think is within your capability? Or, I mean, yeah. did, had you looked all the way to Cromer, is my no. question. No, no, I hadn't. What I had done that morning is I'd looked at the NOTAM info website, which is a graphical representation of the NOTAMs, and you can overlay the airspace on that as well. So I was aware of where some of the ATZs were, where Luton CTA was and so forth. But I wasn't, I had, certainly hadn't memorised all of the flight lanes in terms of, you know, the steps up and steps down in terms of flight levels and, and heights. So no, beyond Oxford, I was very much relying on, on maps, you know, and in flight, I just look at my digital map, which I actually fly with and a digital copy of the CAA air chart, which runs in memory map. So it is literally the equivalent of the paper air map. So it's in exactly the same colours. It's just a digital copy of the air map, which I really like because 
you know, it's coloured in that way and it's drawn in that way for a very good reason because it's very easy to read. I think that's that's the best way to go. You can look at, you can scroll around, you can look at exactly what the flight levels are that you're in and so forth. You know, which isn't always obvious on some of the other some of the other instruments. Is it a relatively big screen? Because no, it's not, and that is the, that's the only downside. It's quite small. It's probably three inches by two inches or two and a half by two, something like that. So it's quite small. Um, so you've got a lot of scrolling to do to see what's coming up in the distance to make you have like planning. Yeah, I try and always, you know, the direction I'm flying, I always squeeze myself, my, you know, where, showing where I am on the map into one corner so I can see as far ahead as possible. But it's not, it's not the best, no. And now, of course, there are instruments around now which show you have much bigger screens, which is obviously the way to go, really. So how did you actually do the flight planning then? You know, once you, or were you, I mean, were you just keeping ahead of needing <laughs> to, to plan, you know, maybe mm-hmm. 20 or 30 mm-hmm. kilometres in advance that you need to be northwest mm-hmm. of one thing or southeast of another? So come back to what I said, I, I was very conscious that I knew that the whole glut, I suppose to speak, of Heathrow and Luton is there. It's off to my east. OK, I might not know exactly where it drops down to four and a half and three and a half and so forth, but I know it's all there. And if I get blown too far east for suddenly both, you know, the first half, three quarters of the flight, it's going to cause me problems. So I need to start, try as much as possible to head as north, you know, so where, where possible, if I can see good clouds to the north, try and jump those gaps and that's that is easier said than done and it was a good day no doubt but it's not straightforward and obviously having the glider that I did on the day as well without a doubt helps. So you said that before that for the first 60 or 80 kilometers you were very very familiar with the airspace and you could you didn't even really need to look at your map because from the ground features you were able to tell where you were and where the airspace was. Exactly. So at which point did you then come into unfamiliar territory and what did you do? Kind of sort of beyond Oxford, really. Then it, then because, again, there was a lot of western wind, it's blowing me towards sort of three and a half thousand foot airspace in and around Luton. But just to the north of that three and a half, there's four and a half. And I was conscious that I wanted to try and get into that four and a half area. But I was getting blown towards the town of Ellsbury, which is where it drops down to three and a half thousand feet. And, you know, very tantalisingly, over the back of Ellsbury in this three and a half thousand foot ceiling, you can see the clouds going to above 5,000 foot because just previously I'd been at over 5,000 foot, which was at base. And so I could see these clouds are at 5,000 foot. And you got a good depth of convection that day in, in the thermal. So if you get into one of those thermal and it's good and it's strong, it's quite possible that even if you fly away from it, you're still going to be going up for some period of time, you know, certainly downwind of, of that thermal. And again, a previous flight was very helpful here because uh, two years ago I did a flight from Milk, I think it was, or Ribery, where... I got into a situation where I was basically getting sucked up in a the thermal and was rapidly approaching um, airspace. And um, I, I overcooked it, basically. Let's, <laughs> let's leave it at that. So uh, that was still very recent in my mind, I suppose, is the way to put it, that I didn't want that to happen again. And on that particular day, I left myself a cushion of about 500 foot below the airspace, and it wasn't enough. So on this day, I was well, one, conscious of the fact I didn't want to fly into this three and a half area beyond Ellsbury because probably the climbs were going to take me way through three and a half and I might not be able to escape them. So that was my first thing to deal with. And, and that was probably one of two crunch points on the flight, probably the biggest crunch point, actually. So this is about 85k. Now, in context, 85k at this point uh, on that Sunday was a good distance for me. <laughs> I think I've never gone over 100k once in the UK. So I was very very much not wanting to lose my 85 kilometres to infringing airspace. So 
I decided that I wouldn't fly towards Ellsbury, that I would try and fly around to the northwest side of Ellsbury and try and get towards this four and a half thousand foot ceiling on the airspace. And if I went down, I went down, but I had no option really but to do that. So that's what I did. And I ended up getting quite low. I mean, not kicking tree type low. It wasn't my lowest save ever, but I managed to find a bubble at about 1,500 foot, 2,000 foot, something like that. But it was very weak, but it was good enough to circle in. There was no sun on the ground. It was all in shade. Um, but I headed over like a big sort of building site where they're building a load of new houses. And I hoped that would work. And it did. It was my lucky day, really. And I managed to circle in that and drift with it. Because, again, there's a lot of winds. So I was just drifting with this bubble. And then the sun came out, drifted over a sunny area, and it just went off again. And, you know, that's the mad thing about paragliding. Because I went from desperately trying to stay up in this bubble to it really kicking off and then all of a sudden although I was now in four and a half thousand foot airspace ceiling I was suddenly worried about busting four and a half as well you know crazy literally like three or four minutes later oh my god I'm going to go through four and a half so so and then this is set up the next 30-40k of the flight really where I was actually having to leave climbs to make sure I didn't fly through the four and a half thousand foot ceiling which was the next 30k of the flight was sort of four four and a half thousand foot so that was quite a difficult bit. And I decided to sort of make, I told myself that I was going to leave myself a thousand foot, which seems an awful lot. But the climbs were good. The climbs are strong. And I thought there would be more downwind of where I was. And that had been the story up to that point. So, so I was actually leaving the climbs at about three and a half, three, six. And at one point I actually had to, I was now under a cloud street, which was obviously above 5,000 foot. And I've only got four and a half to play with. So at one point I hit the lift and it was so strong. I decided, you know, proper four five meters per second in good 360s you know there was it was obviously going to go back up to base which I couldn't afford to do so I actually turned 90 degrees and flew away from the lift for about a kilometer to get away from it all completely so it was kind of reverse psychology <laughs> at that point completely I was going to say that must have been so yeah difficult <laughs> it is point. difficult because it is literally like I say the opposite of what you're trained yourself to do one must always work lift you know and mm. uh, I was having to go, no, I mustn't. And, and, and I, you know, I so much think the flight from two years ago, which would have been a very long flight over 100 kilometres that day, was very fresh in my mind and forced me to make sure that I didn't let it happen again. So experience helps. Well, but those are kind of the markings of a good cross-country pilot, to be able to think out of the box and do things differently because that's what you have mm. to do. It's that mm. or lose the flight, and so you make that choice. But a lot of people get so seduced by the climb and seduced by yes. it, and yes. they kind of forget all the other stuff that needs to happen next to make the flight progress. But that's right, and I think that's where good comp experience, you know, lots of comp experience comes in as well because, you know, in competitions, one of the biggest things I learned early on in competitions was you don't have to take climbs to the top. If there's a good day and there's good lift around, you will find more lift. And, and obviously in, in a competition task, we're trying to race. You don't need to take thermals to the top if there's another good one, two kilometres downwind of where you are anyway. You can just carry on. So so that, so that again, it was that kind of a day really where I was essentially almost in sort of competition mode where I was thinking, well, I'm sure there'll be more. Going back in the flight a bit, I mean, I suppose the other thing to say now, obviously, was that I was now on my own. But I kind of wasn't. There was a lot of sailplanes around on this day. And what was almost spooky about these sailplanes was it was very few of them climbing. They all just seemed to be gliding past me at different heights, which, you know, after I suppose initially I was like, I couldn't quite work it out. You've got so much else you're concentrating on. And I, then it became very obvious again to me that it was a very good day. That's why they weren't thermaling much. You know, they were just taking the odd climb when they needed it. And the rest of the time they were surfing around really um, to a large degree. Um, and obviously they, they don't need much lift 
good sailplane. They can fly for miles without climbs anyway. When I think about it, this day was, it was almost like a privilege because, you know, I got myself up early when the winds were light enough on the hill. And I suppose now we're talking sort of gone one o'clock and I know there's a meal in another very good pilot who had arrived on the side much later and taken off when it was pretty much blown out at about one o'clock. So that probably was when I was sort of into the air and I'm now describing, you know, I think basically now I was up there and yes, there was a lot of wind, but not, you know, probably too much to take off with, but not too much to be in the air with um, because you can fly in wind stronger than what you can take off in. So it was a sailplane day, really. I was up there on a sailplane day, very fortunately. Those are the kind of days when it was used to only be hang gliders and, and sailplanes and, you know, the fact that it's possible now in paragliders. Well, that's yes, that's, yes. that's how we can do these longer and longer distances. So at what, yes. what distance were you at this point? So now I'm, I'm probably at this point, well, I'm definitely over 100 kilometres, so I'm somewhere probably 120, 130, 140 kilometres, that kind of a distance, I guess. Can I just ask you of interest, do you actually have the distance to take off on your GPS? I mean, do you know when you're flying how far you've come? It's a very good question, <laughs> because I do, but uh, a lot of my GPS is set up for competitions. So the first page of my instruments is set up for comps, really, but it obviously still has my ground speed on there, which you need even in a competition, or you need it whenever you're flying so that's on there and that's in a way one of the most important things when you're flying cross-country knowing what the judging what the wind speed is from from your ground speed and so forth so no um to answer your question my distance from takeoff is on another page of my gps and i I actually keep it like that purposely because i don't like that distraction when i'm flying cross-country of Sometimes it can be a good distraction. Well, it's a distraction either way. Sometimes it's a distraction because you know you've flown a long way and you get distracted by that thought and, oh, my word, you know, I might break my PB or whatever it could be, you know. And other times it can just be damn depressing because, you know, you suddenly, it's, oh, I've still only flown 30 kilometres and I've been up here for two hours. You know? so, so, no, I keep it hidden. And I did actually about this point decide to have a look at it. And that was because, I mean, I had my airspace on, pretty much the whole flight i've got like a battery extender i plug into it which works very well so i'm able to keep it on most of the time and obviously beyond the first part of the flight i needed it on the whole time because i'm navigating through areas i'm not familiar with in terms of airspace so um anyway and on that airspace i started to notice names of things and thinking i can remember hearing about richard bungay and the emils flight from last year or the year before when they flew from milk and they did about 150 just over 150 kilometers which I think was a site record for Milk at the time. And I could see those areas around sort of, I suppose, around Luton and around Bedford and that kind of an area. So I, I knew I'd flown well. I knew I'd broken my, my PB for sure. And I, I started thinking, yeah, I might have broken a site record here. It's definitely a possibility. So, so I did have a look and there it was. It was about, yeah, it was about 150k when I looked. Certainly it was about 150 kilometres. Um, so. so at that point, were you thinking... Oh, maybe I can fly 166 kilometres, or did that well, not enter yes. your head? I mean, the weirdest thing about it all was that I was still high at this point. You know, I wasn't like scrabbling around down low looking for lift. I'm high, and the sky in front of me is good. You know, that that was the other thing as well. So I'm, you know, probably when I looked, I was at 3,000, 4,000 foot or something. I was sky high on glide. You know, hence why I was looking at my instruments more because I was on glide rather than concentrating on a thermal. So yeah, so that was you know only am I over 150 kilometers i've still got potentially more to do here which was <laughs> almost i don't know almost um alarming really that the kind of day it was turning into you know it was it was wonderful but it's also a little bit 
I don't know. Well, but I mean, if it was only one o'clock, so you knew that you had at least another yeah. like five or six hours worth of flying, yes. potentially yes. in the day, a good yes. sky ahead of you, you're high, and you must mm. have been thinking, well, hey. <laughs> you do, but you, but equally, I was still very conscious of not wanting to get too distracted by that, because I, I, what I tend to do with that, when I know I've done a good flight, is I let, I, I let myself have these little mental sort of recognitions, you know, little whoops in my head, but I but no, no, you must, you must, you must focus again, you know. I mean, one, because actually I, I don't want to get sort of too uh, sort of uh, out of control in the air in that sense that, you know, like, hey, wow, you know, because when you've still got to land the glider, you need, you know, you need to keep yourself together, <laughs> really. You can't just go completely euphoric over it. But, but nonetheless, yeah, of course, of course, yeah, in your head you're going, yeah, oh, that's good, that's good. <laughs> yeah well you know but just you know yeah, yeah no no but yeah. yeah so you have a little celebration and then you're yeah. all right so yes obviously it whatever was going to happen at this point was a good day you know but again coming back to the wind um that was the other reason i wasn't going to get too excited about things because i was very conscious of the wind and that a bit like they say in mountaineering you you climb them out you, you haven't done a summit until you've got back down the mountain there's no point getting up and then dying up there or the weather coming and you can't get back down off the mountain. The same thing on the paraglider. You still got to land the glider at the end of the day, and you're very conscious if it's getting windy. You know, what's it doing down below? Is it going to get to the point where you know I could get rotated in or I could get dragged or or whatever it might be? You know, so I was very conscious of that. You know, now for quite some time I've been getting averaging 70 kilometers an hour on glide, so it's obviously windy. You know, it's not howling. And again, experience from comps and flying abroad was telling me that you know 70 kilometers an hour, yeah, that's pretty strong, but it's not. I've I've flown on glides, you know, like say in Spain in Piedrahita on a windy day, I've flown on those kind of conditions and landed out no problem. You know, and and also in a way I'm almost flying into sort of Piedrahita type countryside in a sense. I'm flying into well, in terms of the topography I am, it's completely flat to going into the Cambridgeshire Flats and and then, of course, towards Norfolk Flats as well. It's just complete flatland flying, you know, big open fields, lots of opportunities to land. It's also worth reiterating that you are on an R11. Yes. You are going to fly faster anyway. If I was doing 70 70 kilometres an hour on my glider, then I wouldn't be worried about the wind. But obviously, you know, the two factors together, it isn't actually... You know, it's factoring in this performance in the glider. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. I hadn't really thought about that too much, but that's true. That is true. That is true. And on Tuesday, when I was on milk again, very light winds, very different day, and we were just trying to sort of, you know, ridge saw. It's, it's a really difficult glider to ridge saw with other gliders because it's like flying a hang glider next to them. It just keeps buzzing past people. As you say, that translates to when your glider's always flying like that. So um, at trim, downwind is going to be flying quite fast. So take us back to where you are now then. You're 150 odd kilometres. Yes. And where are you geographically? Geographically, I am Bedford. Yeah, I've gone between Milton Keynes and Leighton Buzzard, basically. And I've just gone over the M1. And just the other side of the M1, beyond Flitwick, you come out of a four and a half area, four and a half thousand foot airspace, ceiling, and you're back into 5,500 foot basically but immediately to my southeast it's three and a half thousand foot so it's quite an interesting spot just there because I was in a five and a half thousand foot area but I'm less than a kilometre from part of the the CTA around Luton which is at three and a half thousand foot so that was another difficult area because I'm conscious of the fact there's still a lot of west in the wind and I'm only less than half a kilometre well between a kilometre and a half kilometre from CTA area. So I was worried about getting pushed into that, to be honest. I felt very worried. You know, and that's where you start thinking, oh, I'm going to have to start flying 
back upwind, get away from it and losing height and so on and so forth. So that was quite tricky. And I was, but I was high when I came through there. I was, yeah, 4,000 foot. So I had plenty of height to play with. And I did do a bit of, well, and this is the next, one of the next, I said there was two crunch points, but this is probably the second of three, actually, which was also now looming directly in front of me is an ATZ as well, which kind of straddles this CTA. Part of the ATZ is in the CTA and part isn't. And it's like directly on my, like right on my course completely. So I was like, yeah, bugger. And in a way, it kind of crept up on me a bit as well, if I'm honest. At this point, I'm still ooh, three kilometres from it. But it's suddenly next thing to look at. And I, you know, I've got it there on my on my airspace. And, oh, God, what am I going to do about this? Because, again, the wind pushing me from behind. And I'm kind of heading directly towards what would be the middle of the A to Z, if you see what I mean. You know, sort of what to do. So I can see on my track log here that I'm thinking, OK, I'm going to try and push the north. I'm going to push right to the north and go around the top of this A to Z. And after about a kilometre or two of doing that, it was evident I wasn't going to get around this A to Z, no chance. So then starting to think, I'm down to about 3,000 foot and I'm starting to think, well, okay, can I get across it? 1,000 foot? Because actually, you know, they go to, they go to 2,000 foot and now I'm into the flatlands. So this thing only sits at 100 foot above the ground, you know, the runway. So it literally is only 2,000 foot. So you could fly the top of it, which is, and I, I think some people don't realise that you can fly the top of the ATZ. You don't have to go around these things. You can fly over things as well. So I'm now thinking, do I try and fly over it? And of course, in the past, when I tried to do that, I tried to keep towards one edge of it because then you could think, well, OK, if I start to, if I start to sink, I start descending. At least I can fly off to one side and get back out of it before I infringe it. Anyway, it was my lucky day because I had another thermal just before. <laughs> just before I went into the ATZ, above it at this point, about 3,000 foot, I hit a weak climb, but weak enough to sustain me. And I actually came out the other side of the ATZ slightly higher than I went in about 500 foot brilliant yeah so that was very nice and and in fact when I got that lift I was like you know even though I wasn't low I was like I must I must hang on to this thermal you know concentrate concentrate it was really focused at that point I just thought I I can't afford to lose this thermal otherwise I'm going to lose well one you're breaking airspace which is you know breaking the law and two you're going to lose you know 150 160k flight out of it you know so so yeah, so I got across that one as well. So that was that was good. And then after that, you know, next sort of ten k's in five and a half thousand. And then of course it's, you know, that's basically referred to as a promised land beyond that because then you're out of airspace. You have got well, there is actually more airspace coming up in terms of ATZs, and there is actually another CTR now around Norwich as well, around Norwich ATZ. But essentially, you you can fly through areas where there is no airspace at all. It's completely unrestricted. There's no flight lanes, no ATZs, no, there's no nothing. So so that was on the horizon. Finally, even in the south, you know, the southeast of the UK, although there's some big sort of military areas and big uh, maps and stuff around, you, you know, you're out of the whole London terminal manoeuvring thingy and you're out of Luton and you're away from it all. So knowing that that was coming up was was good. You know, that was really, really good. Well, I mean, having navigated what the probably busiest airspace area mm-hmm. in Britain, and then mm-hmm. suddenly you can go to base, you can <laughs> no, fly, you know, oh, it must have been wonderful. It was, it was. Knowing that that was coming out was just great. But, and, you know, almost rather perversely at this point, and 
um, annoyingly, I was now on a big long glide at the other side of this ATZ. So I come out the other side of this ATZ at three and a half, and I'm still in a 5,500 foot bit of airspace. God, we've talked a lot about airspace in this flight, but in a way that you know, a lot of the flight, although it's a big, long, beautiful flight, a lot of the flight was navigating the airspace really and trying to do that while you're flying the glider and everything else you know it's, it's hard work it's tiring but yes yeah, so now i'm on glide i've got less to worry about in terms of airspace because base is about just over 5,000 foot i'm in 5,500 foot airspace ceiling above me i'm about to go into no airspace at all um but i'm getting lower again um and this was the last kind of crunch point of the flight because i suppose now i'm sort of up to um probably about 100 70k or so on the flight so i'm getting low now this i'm getting low <laughs> all right so, so you, you're into the promised yeah. land of no airspace and you suddenly <laughs> airspace and i'm now getting low probably the lowest i've been the entire flight you know how so. ironic <laughs> Ridiculous. in fact i'm just looking at now no so when i came into it i was high but i was on glide i got a climb just as i came into it back up to about five thousand. then went on glide and i got as low as what did i get down to yeah i got down to See, I didn't get that low, but it felt low compared to what I've been doing, I suppose. I got down to about 3,000 foot. So pretty high still, really, I suppose, in hindsight when you think about it. But it felt low. It felt like I was a lot lower than I'd been. I'd been on a big, long glide as well, and I hadn't found anything. I think that was what I was conscious of as well. And I'd just flown over the, I think it was the, yeah, the M11. So I'd gone over a lot of motorways by this point. I'd gone over the M4. The M40, the M1, and now the M11. You know, again, there's those kind of things where you're in your head when you're flying. You think, yeah. They're, they're, in a way, those are the kind of things that tell you you've flown a long way, you know. In fact, it's now gone over four motorways. So the Cambridge Flats is stretching out in front of me. I've got all that to play with. I'm getting low, and I need a climb, really. And then I saw this copse, you know, like a small woodland in front, surrounded by big fields. So it was obviously a, an obvious trigger point. It was into wind, you know, one edge of this, this woodland was into wind. And there was a big, dirty, gorgeous cumulus sat above it. So initially I was focused on that. I was like, well, you know, come on, that's got to work. And, and in a way, it had been a quite a textbook day, you know. So for the first time, sort of the whole flight in a way, because I've had so much, you know, all day, you know, the R11's got obviously the speed bar has got issues around flying it on bar but you know a lot of the time in the UK you don't need to be flying on bar anyway you know I think there'd been the odd little burst where I'd put on half bar on it during the flight but nothing for more than you know 10 seconds 20 seconds 30 second type stuff you know less than a minute but anyway so I'm getting low and I thought well I've done this huge flight anyway sod it I'll just you know I'll half bar it towards this this thing even though I'm going downwind and just hope and pray it works and then lo and behold I see the cell play which I hadn't seen sat you know halfway to cloud base under this thing and banked up you know at a really good angle almost you know you can see under surfaces under surface of the cell plane so I thought yeah that's gonna work that's gotta work and it did it did and it took me back up to well over 5,000 foot with the cell plane in the same thermal so it was just yeah it was just a remarkable day you know just it was just one kind of amazing memory after another in terms of what was happening that was really, I suppose, the climb that sealed getting 200 kilometres for me. I didn't know it at the time, but that took me up to a height where I could see Ely ahead of me, which is very distinctive because it's, you know, it's this cathedral city in, in the Cambridge flatlands, surrounded by nothing really on any large scale. So that was ahead of me. And I started to think that that might be where I would land. You know, that would be a good point. There would be a big railway line there. I could see that on the airspace. There was a big railway line going through it. I thought, yeah, that would be a good place to land. That's probably going to be about 
200 kilometers or so I'll land there that'll do you know that'll do (laughs) and it was starting to get windier you know I could see it on again on my ground speed I'm probably sort of starting to get just over sort of 70 kilometers hour on glide and stuff so I went on a big long glide towards Ely and I thought you know so I'm going to go down I've got low enough again where I could start looking at what did I get down to yeah, I got low. Just before Ely, I got down to quite low, sort of well below 3,000, like 2.7, something like that. So I was low enough to start looking at. There's all these big kind of canals that run through the Cambridge Flats, big wide canals, and you could see the wind on the water. So that was a good indicator. And I started looking at all the trees and the woodlands and just really peering at things and trying to make out what you know what the wind's doing. And it looked, again, it didn't look too bad, if I'm honest. It looked you know, the trees were bent over at right angles, put it that way. And, you know, there wasn't like white horses on the water or anything like that. So so that reassured me that it, it was going to be OK probably to land. I just need to pick a nice big field and so on and so forth. Anyway, it didn't end there because, because I got I got close to Ely and I just now almost without trying, really, I just hit another big climb. And, you know, and back to what we were saying earlier on, one is sort of trained to thermal when one hits me. So I just found myself going up in this thermal and I now got Ely off to my left. I'm looking down Ely and I'm, you know, way I'm back up to 4,000 feet again in this climb. So I'm obviously not going to land at Ely. So that's 200 kilometres about at Ely and I landed at 233. And really in the next 30 kilometres I did without trying really, without really wanting to even fly any more distance. I just became totally preoccupied with, with the wind and with not wanting to make, you know, if nothing else, not wanting to make a fool of myself, either to myself or others, by crashing or you know, landing and hurting myself. Or because you, know, you do become conscious of that, you know, you're not in a competition and you're not you're miles away from anybody. I do. I did have a radio with me, but no one was in radio contact by this stage. And I just became very preoccupied with wanting to land, really, um, and get down. I know that feeling exactly because when I flew down to Swansea, I, I didn't land on the beach because it just wouldn't have been safe and I had to force myself to say, this is as far as it's safe to fly it now land. Yes, you understand. Because it was so windy. So exactly. sometimes you've just got to say, yeah, it's a shame, but yeah. now the right thing to do is just to call it a day. So. Exactly, exactly. So that was my preoccupation now and I, I, I kind of switched off from actively thermaling and I was much more looking at you know really up to that point apart from two occasions I hadn't really had to look at the ground much because I'd just been using uh, clouds as markers really and sailplanes and so on and so forth so I hadn't really been paying much attention to the ground as such other than occasionally to go isn't that lovely and then get back to the flight so um, I think the flight the climb before Ely was one of the few times when I got really high in the sailplane where you know the views are just stunning you know because actually see to the sea even at that point where I started, you know, I just thought, yeah, just take that in. That's just, you know, that's just awesome. So, yeah, so now I'm really looking at the ground, looking at the size of the fields, looking at, you know, where am I going to land? And I could see once I got just beyond Ely, I could see the wash. Yeah, the wash is sort of dead to the north of Ely, big inlet on the coast. And then I could really see the smudge of the, the east coast, really, although it's north facing at that point near Cromer. That was obviously there as well. And this is probably where the R11 put me down as well, because as amazing a gliding it is, you can't big ears it very easily. You can, but it flaps around a lot. It doesn't really like it. And you can't spiral dive it very easily. And I didn't have the antigen with me this day either, because 
I don't really fly with it in the UK, if I'm honest. I just I don't think I need it. You know, it's more for getting away from very strong lift. It's, and all uh, it is useful in the UK, but it's just one more bit of faff to be dealing with on takeoff and so on and so forth. So I, I religiously fly with it in the comps on um, these two-line gliders because I don't know if people know, but the issue you've got is they've got so few lines, the wing is so efficient that you can't, it, when you spy, try to spiral dive, it just goes around in circles, really. It loses very little height because the old gliders, were, you were able to spiral dive them because they've got so many damn lines that the, um, the amount of drag just makes the glider corkscrew downwards, whereas with the two-liners, they just tend to go around in circles. So the anti-G, which is this sort of drogue shoot type thing you throw out, turns the glider into an ENB. <laughs> Or an ENA glider, so you can spiral down more easily. So I didn't have that with me, and I think it was a combination of the fact that not only was it windy, it was also still very thermic. So the two combined just became completely preoccupied that I was going to get blown out to sea in a four-up. I just, <laughs> I just came completely obsessed with it, and I was going to completely mess it up. That was it. I was going to die in the sea. You know, I mean, that sounds slightly melodramatic, but it it really was how I was starting to think, really. And the thing was, now I'm lower as well. You become much more conscious of how fast you are flying down when uh, fields that I kind of thought might be good landing options near small villages and so forth just went by, you know. I suppose I was thinking, you know, I'll go and land there. But then I became conscious of that. I'm still at sort of nearly 3,000 foot or, you know, 2,500 foot. You can't just go and land in a field just there when the wind's that strong because you're just going to get blown past it. By this point, what time was it? Um, it's not that late because don't forget, I, the flight took five hours, 20 minutes or thereabouts. I'd, I'd left the hill at 20 past 11. So it's now what, sort of four o'clock. You must have been getting really tired. I was. Simply, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much you eat or drink in the air. Yes. Well, um, of course, all my preparation for the day before, the big day the day before, so I'd actually sorted myself out so that I could go for a pee in the air on a Saturday. Of course, I ended up flying 25 kilometres. Um, this day, I thought I'm not going to fly anywhere near that far, so I didn't. I wasn't that wasn't prepared in that way to go to the toilet in the air. Mm. And also, I didn't have any food either. So I had my camel back, but I was also only taking small sips. So by this stage, yeah, almost certainly, say I'm probably dehydrated and I'm starting to lose concentration because I haven't eaten anything either. So so I just wanted down. I wanted out. Well, I think that's perfectly understandable, to be perfectly honest. So, you know, I think getting these ideas that, you know, it's all going to go terribly wrong and things, I don't yeah. think is that, you know, it's it's not kind of that off the wall when you've been already flying for five and a yeah. bit hours and you're thirsty and you're tired and you're hungry yeah. and you need to pee. Okay, so you wanted that. Yeah, I did, I did. And um, so, but I became aware of the fact that I couldn't try and land the glider at 3,000 foot, obviously. Um, I needed to lose a lot of height. So I then just try to get the glider down so whenever I hit any kind of sinky patches I just start to spiral dive the glider or turn really tightly in these sinky patches all the while I'm still covering distance to some degree as well you know but I managed to get down to less than a thousand foot and I don't get the grounds at about sea level anyway at this point so you know about about a thousand foot off the ground and or even less now and I could see a field in, ahead of me that looked good it was you know, by this stage, I'd missed about five or six fields that I'd wanted to land in, but couldn't because I wasn't low enough and I was getting blown along. So now I see this field ahead of me. It's a big dirt field. It's got nothing upwind of it, essentially. No big trees, no houses. In fact, it's fairly open all around. And it's a big, long field as well. So I kind of thought, you know, maybe I can get to this one. 
So I, lo I lost even more height and up Windersfield and then just kind of parked myself up Windervich, you know, so that I didn't get blown through the field and then couldn't land in it. And then did the usual thing at the last minute, putting in a sort of 180 degree turn and coming and coming to land. And the last sort of few seconds, I did actually have forward speed. I wasn't coming down backwards and literally one, two, three you know, kilometres an hour forward speed. So I got the glider down. I'd also I had these big thick gloves on as well that I'd been using for winter flying still. And so I made sure that, you know, I take a half, they, cut, they sort of come half over my hands. So I made sure that those were clear so that, you know, I could let go of the brakes or whatever I needed to do when I landed. And I just took a huge wrap and buried it. And I didn't get dragged. I didn't get pulled off my feet. But the glider came down and then it flipped onto its leading edge, which probably helped. But now I've got this big wall of a glider. And it, it was windy. It was definitely windy. <laughs> And then I was struggling to take more wraps on it, really. But I managed to do that. And then I literally just started almost hauling in on the actual lines themselves. I managed to get it in. It was fine. So, phew. Didn't get dragged. Nothing happened at all. So that's good. Interestingly, come back to what I've just been saying about the fact that I was concerned, not just about the wind strength, the prevailing wind strength, but also the thermals, you know, and how active the day still was. Because I then carried the glider to the edge of the field and just sat down on the glider and just I just wanted to just sit for a few seconds and take stock digest think about what I'd just done because I just felt slightly overwhelmed by the size of the flight because not only obviously the female record gone I'd essentially you know almost broken the record you know the overall record 20k short and you landed yeah. by choice I did yeah so, and it was more know, than 20k I land left so if I got to Cromer I would have broken the British record you know, as much as it was a wonderful thing it was also I was also very tired and I was quite you know slightly overwhelmed by it and the fact that you know before Richard had done it last year no one had ever flown over 200 kilometers and Kai had done it the day before so I was only the third person to do that so it was, it was a big flight you know, a really really big flight not just the second longest ever in the UK and you landed by choice so you know I know it's an incredible flight unbelievable yeah it was and talking to people afterwards I, I said to Agent Thomas you know he's no slouch himself that I'd landed by choice and he was he, I can't believe you landed by choice and I said well I just, it's mental, isn't it? And I, I'd switched off and I wanted down, you know. And, and I think at that point, although I knew Richard's distance wasn't too far off, I don't think I was that conscious of how far it was to the coast. Anyway, I knew there was a distance. I didn't know if I could get past the record of that distance. And it, it just became irrelevant, actually. It became completely irrelevant. I just didn't want to be in the air any longer. You know, it was what it was. Actually, I'm very glad I made that decision to come back to what I was just saying. So I carried the glider to the edge of the field and there were thermic gusts coming down this field like you wouldn't believe. You know, it wasn't just a prevailing wind because the wind would drop. And then five minutes later, these massive gusts of wind would come down the field. So I'd probably been fortunate actually to land probably outside of one of those gusts. But it showed how active the day still was. I'm 100% convinced that if I'd wanted to carry on, uh, maybe if I'd had the antigen with me, for example, I wasn't feeling as tired, etc., etc., then I, I could definitely have got to the coast and I could definitely have broken the British record. So it shows it's doable. From Milk Hill, you can break the British record. Oh, what a day. <laughs> yeah, what a day. What a day. Thanks so much for sharing your adventure. If you enjoy our podcasts, webcasts and articles on the paraglider, Please consider making a donation to support us with our costs for hosting and also to support us in making great new resources. We've got lots of ideas for new podcasts, webcasts and articles and we'd be happy to produce them, but we need your support. 
You can find the donate button on any of the podcast pages on theparaglider.com as well as on the main index page. Thank you.